This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. George Floyd's death in Minneapolis has drawn national attention not only to the future of policing, but the fact that Minnesota has some of the widest racial disparities in the country. As our guest today explains, quote, on virtually every measure of social and economic well-being, the black-white gap in Minnesota is larger than the black-white gap elsewhere in the country. Many readers have asked us to look into the origins of these disparities, and two of my colleagues did so in a story published last year, which we will link to in the show notes. Today, we talk with one of the most prominent scholars on the topic, Professor Sam Myers of the University of Minnesota, who has been studying this issue for a quarter century. We talk about some of the decisions and policies that help explain how we got where we are today. This episode is a bit longer than our normal 15 minutes, but I didn't want to lose the key points from our interview, which lasted about 45 minutes. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Can you sort of define the terms for us? What specifically makes us different when it comes to the gap in our disparities or the breadth of them? And what specifically are we talking about? I imagine things like home ownership and other things, but maybe we could just kind of lay the groundwork there. Let me start with the issue of housing and lending where the black-white gap in Minnesota is some of the largest in the country. I want to point out that part of the reason why the black-white gap in Minnesota is so large is partly related to the high levels of socioeconomic well-being among whites. And so if you look at the black-white ratio, uh, there are two ways for that number to be low. You know, one is uh, because the numerator is low, and the other is because the denominator is big in many respects. Uh, the measures of home ownership, measures of income, measures of educational uh, attainment are just simply superior to whites. And so that's one kind of component, you know, uh, what is sometimes called the Minnesota paradox, which is saying that how is it that this is virtually the worst place in the country for African Americans to live, but yet it's one of the best places in the country for whites to live. Mm-hmm. And so that's this is not Mississippi, okay? This is not Alabama. We don't have this legacy of slavery, this legacy of oppression that you find in other parts of the United States, particularly in the South. I think in another interview, you mentioned that the black home ownership rate in Minnesota was at one point one of the highest in the country. Is that right? Because that's that's now one of our big disparities. That's correct. And now it's one of the biggest disparities in the country. And the time when, in the 1930s and early 40s, when the home ownership rate in Minnesota was one of the highest in the country, and I think it's about 40%. And then by uh, 2010, it was down to lower than 40%. Home ownership rates elsewhere in the country started going up for blacks. But in Minnesota, they started going down. And so the legacy of uh, racial gap in homeownership 
in Minnesota is recent. The gap has been widening. It wasn't always the case. And I can give you an explanation for why there was a narrow gap in home ownership in the 1940s. And that is because Minnesota was a magnet for black, highly educated individuals, like engineers, like chemists, like physicians. And so there were some companies like Honeywell, which used to be headquartered in Minnesota, like 3M, like General Mills. These are corporations that hired people with PhDs and master's degrees and undergraduate degrees from engineering schools. And so where's all these people coming from? They're coming from places like Washington, D.C. and and Virginia and Alabama, where they couldn't get jobs. And so they did get jobs in Minnesota. And I don't think that anybody denies the fact that one reason why, particularly during the war and immediately after the war, you had major corporations in Minnesota hiring of these chemists and engineers is the fact that these corporations knew that they benefited from having exceptionally high quality black scientists and technologists. And so there was a thriving, thriving black intellectual class, a black entrepreneurial class who had black businesses, who had black homeowners, who had black theaters and writers and artists and and most of that community was situated in what was called Rwanda, and that community was destroyed. It was destroyed by a highway because, you know, when you draw a line between Minneapolis and St. Paul, it looks like this was the easiest, least resistant community that you could destroy. And so the highway kind of created a, a dislocation, and I think that was kind of like part of the destruction of that strong black middle class that you observed going all the way back to the turn of the century. But what you're saying is that in the earlier part of the 20th century, there was a very vibrant black middle class in Minnesota that started to, um, I'm assuming, erode toward the end of the 20th century due to public policies? I would say that as an economist, the easiest way to describe it was a form of destruction of capital. Most people are able to accumulate capital in one generation and to transfer that capital from one generation to the next generation. As an example, you have a neighborhood in St. Paul, which is a pain-fallen neighborhood, which in the 1950s benefited from federal housing policies and loans that permitted white people who had jobs working in, like the Ford plant, to purchase a home, despite the fact they were of low levels of education. At one point, the average education completion of the homeowners and the pain-fallen neighborhood was something like less than high school. But yet, the home ownership rate was something like 82%. And so then you look at highly educated blacks and their home ownership rates were something like 40%. And so how is it that a high school dropout who's white has a higher home ownership rate than a black highly educated individual? The answer is that, well, partly the benefits, the privileges that a large group of whites had translated into a capital that they could transfer to their children who, when they were 25 or 34, were able to purchase a home because their parents would provide them with a down payment. But for those people whose homes and properties lost during the destruction of Rondo, either they were 
not able to continue to absorb capital and to transfer that to the kids in the form of either loans or gifts in order to purchase their own home. Or they moved away and they went to Atlanta and they went to Washington, D.C. And so part of the shift that occurred between the 30s and the 70s, part of it was related to public policies. And so policies on one hand that favored white people, and by the way, I don't think at the time that the FHA policy and the VA loans were initiated, it was necessarily consciously designed at Minnesota to create white privilege. I'm just saying that one of the effects was to privilege white people. But then on the other hand, you had specific public policies like the construction of Highway 94, which destroyed capital among black people. And so the combination of those two things helped to reduce the pool of funds and resources that a whole generation of blacks had. It's not just one thing that's mm-hmm. happening, but it's a multiple things all induced by public policies. And when you talk about the FHA loan policies and how that affected whites specifically and and then blacks as well, can you be more specific about what was baked into those policies that ended up having this effect? So there's a famous project that's going on in Minneapolis right now that's mapping, you know, segregation. And so if you look at the racial covenants of particular loans, as well as the redlining, so the original federal housing policies were based on the notion that we didn't want to mix races based on an economic theory that says that housing prices will decline if their races are mixed. And so redlining is a legacy of federal housing policies that was endorsed and supported by local elected officials that produced and sustained racially segregated neighborhoods. So two of the things that you've brought up are FHA housing policies and the interstate through the cities. Both of those things are things that we would find in other cities across the country during the same times. Was there something that ended up making Minnesota sort of unique and go down a path that ended up with these much larger disparities than other states around the country? And the answer is yes. I think it's absolutely the case that in places like Boston, places like New Jersey, there are other places in the country where opposition to black communities was explicit and vocal and cloaked in some of the language of a new northern racism. In contrast to Minnesota, there was a progressive element. Remember that Hubert Humphrey in 1948 or 1949 spoke at the Democratic National Convention and spoke about racial equality. He almost ruined his political career by taking a position that was widely opposed by the vast majority of Southern Democrats. And I hope you remember that it was Hubert Russell Humphrey who was the floor manager for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so when you think about Minnesota, you think about who our governors were. Orville Freeman, the father of Mike Freeman, the person who is the district attorney for Hennepin County. When you think about the legacy of that these were progressives, okay, we live in a state where we embrace egalitarianism. We live in a state that values the idea of social justice, of fairness. 
And so instead of having these programs that had adverse effects on black communities, instead of having these programs implemented by bigots and racists and people who are hostile to the idea of racial equality, many of these programs were advocated by progressives. They were advocated by, you know, people deeply committed to egalitarianism. So with that said, what's different about Minnesota is that Minnesota has nice people. Minnesota has people who believe in equality. And it's really difficult for progressives in Minnesota to embrace the idea. How is it possible for us to have these racial disparities? So if I'm understanding you correctly, is what you're saying that because we didn't have as much outright expressed racism in this state as other states and cities did around the country, that we maybe never confronted the racist implications of some of the policies, particularly those that were coming from the federal government? Or am I misunderstanding you? I agree, but I also believe that part of the problem is that we believe that in order for there to be racism, there have to be racists. And that's the ignorance about the possibility that racism can become baked in into institutions, that racism can become institutionalized. And if racism's institutionalized, even black leaders, even leaders from community of colors can reproduce that racism. And so be very careful if you begin an anti-racism initiative. And a lot of people have been talking about that. And a lot of the CEOs of major corporations have been donating to brand new anti-racism organizations. Be careful, because if you believe that what you're trying to fight is this overt racism by individual racists, then you're missing an important point about the nature of institutionalized or structural racism. There's a lot of politicians today who are talking about trying to tackle this issue. What do you think should be their top targets? So we have a lot of disparities, and you might ask me which of the biggest disparities are there, and I think that the two biggest disparities are the disparities of wealth and the disparities in the criminal justice system. There are also disparities in things like, you know, the child protective services, disparities in test scores, disparities in foster care placements, disparities in automobile ownership. There are a lot of different disparities. In fact, there's disparities in drowning rates. But if you ask me, which of the different disparities I feel have the greatest potential for transformative change within our community if we tackle them incrementally? I would say housing, credit, and criminal justice. So let me talk about housing. The main vehicle for home ownership is mortgage lending. Minnesota has one of the biggest racial gaps in loan denial rates in the country. And 25 years ago, the Urban Coalition and the Working Center put together a coalition of banks, of nonprofit organizations, of community activists, and elected officials, and we had something called the 5030 Plan 25 years ago. And the 5030 Plan was spearheaded by members of the Minnesota legislature. And it was designed to raise black homeownership rates to 50% for. 30-year-olds, and it was a fabulous, exhilarating experience of hearing everybody committing themselves to getting homeownership rates up. But then the dilemma is that the conversation shifted away from efforts to eliminate the disparities and get the homeownership rates up through direct lending 
direct efforts by mortgage lenders to expand their portfolios to include not only more minority applicants, but also to include more zip codes that were disproportionately minority. It's kind of shifted away from that and shifted more toward things like credit repair, home ownership, training programs for minorities who don't know how to save money, they don't understand how mortgage markets operate, they don't know and understand what happens, what the consequence is for not paying their bills and so forth. And so most of the big dollars that were coming from places like Wells Fargo or places like U.S. Bank, you know, the big players in this town, was placed not in direct accountability on the part of the lenders to narrow their gaps in lending, but rather a little more ambiguous effort to correct the deficits that Black people had. And I think that that is kind of a way of putting your money into something that looks good, that sounds good, smells good, walks good, but that doesn't necessarily do anything. So it sounds like what you're saying is that, I mean, you also mentioned criminal justice, but a big change that would impact things would be different lending practices in order to build home ownership and also just build wealth in general among uh, Black Minnesotans. The second aspect is criminal justice, and the reason why I say that is that that's the one that changing laws means the most. And so we have a lot of empirical analysis showing that powerful, influential citizen review boards matter. But the problem is we didn't give enough power and enough money and enough influence to citizen review boards. In addition, we found that police officers who are residents of the communities that they are patrolling tend to engage in less unnecessary, unprovoked use of force. That there are fewer killings and there are fewer shootings by police officers of unarmed black males when those police officers know their communities that they are working in. Let's talk about bail. Okay, so it turns out that we have a system of bail that is deeply entrenched. It goes all the way back to after the Civil War. We have a system of bail that's almost designed to re-enslave African Americans. Okay, so you lose your rights, you lose your freedoms once you're incarcerated, right? It's true that you're innocent until you're proven guilty, but at the time of the rest, there's a question of whether or not you're going to go to jail while you're awaiting your trial, or whether or not you're going to be free in order to try to establish your innocence. Well, it turns out that bail setting has the effect largely of disproportionately incarcerating African-American males. And then once you're incarcerated, the chances of you're either being convicted or pleading guilty goes up. Now, this is not new information, but bail reform, which happens to have been on the agenda for a long time, stopped being on the agenda, partly because we believe that out of sight, out of mind. Let's not worry about these people. But it turns out that once these black men are incarcerated, then their criminal records prevent them from getting very specific types of jobs. They can't be a barber. They can't be a bus driver. They can't even work in uh, certain types of, like a dental office as a dental assistant and so forth. And so these are occupational restrictions that are on the books 
and the origins of some of these occupational restrictions are clearly ones that were intended in order to have a racially disparate effect, even though now nobody thinks of it as racially disparate. And so here's some incremental things that our elected officials can immediately redress that can help to turn back the dial with respect to incarceration rates. Well, Professor Myers, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this context. We got a lot of great historical info and delved into some of the policies that shaped where we are today. So I really appreciate you taking a little time today. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. Do you have a question you'd like answered? Record it using the voice recorder app on your phone and email it to curious at startribune.com. We may answer it on a future episode. And please send any feedback you have about the show to the same address, curious at startribune.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.